If the topic of databases is brought up to certain people, their eyes just kind of gloss over. But if that happened, that would only be because they just don't know the awesome power of databases. Data can be valuable, but only if it's contextualized. And time is extremely relevant aspect to consider when analyzing huge amounts of data. Paul Dix, the co-founder and CTO of Influx Data and the creator of InfluxDB, explains how a time series database can help provide that temporal, contextual information to promote efficiencies. Collecting all of this data so you can make more intelligent systems and you can optimize processes. I know of some use cases like in factories where they want to optimize the way the machines run for power consumption. Because when you have, say, like 50 factories around the world and they're running all the time, reducing your power consumption by 10% by optimizing the way your machines run is a huge literal cost saving. So a lot of the times that's what you're doing is you're optimizing some function, a way a machine runs, predictive maintenance is another big use case. So you can say like, oh, we know this machine is going to fail, so we'll take it out of service first and do a repair before that happens. For example, like Rolls-Royce power systems uses Influx for just this kind of thing. Due to the cloud, there's an ability to hold amazing amounts of information. Additionally, there are sensors that have the ability to take in massive amounts of data from specific vantage points. What's needed are ways to understand all this data so decisions to drive productivity can be made accordingly. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Paul shares how his company has created a time series database called InfluxDB that provides this time-based, contextualized data. He also chats about the process that led him to co-found his company. Additionally, Paul describes how the engineering work on his database is always ongoing because the database must adapt to constant technological advancements. Enjoy this episode. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of IT Visionaries. And today we have a special guest, co-founder and CTO at Influx Data and the creator of Influx DB, Paul Dix. Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks. Glad to be here. <laughs> Paul, great to have you here. Love it. We get a lot of companies that are in the database data game, right? And so a lot of them have a hard time distinguishing sometimes telling us what's so special about theirs. We'd love to hear directly from you. What is unique about Influx data in influx db yeah so the reason the company is called influx data is because we make an overall platform for working with time series data so one of those components is a database which is influx db to store and query time series data at scale but we also make it easy to collect your time series data from a variety of sources and we have a piece of software for that called telegraph we make it easy to monitor your data as it comes in both in real time and batch so you can do monitoring alerting, you can trigger for action, you can do data enrichment and ETL. And we have a user interface so that you can visualize the data and summarize it for human consumption. So what makes time series data specifically different than say, like, you know, just relational data or reference database or something like that? So one is just the pure scale of it. In many use cases, you quickly get up to a point where you're collecting billions of observations or individual data points per day. Right. And in a relational database and a reference database, like in your customer database, you're certainly not collecting billions of observations per day. Or if you are, good for you. You're very successful. So the scale is one issue. The other things are managing the data lifecycle. 
at that scale, like how much data you keep around becomes meaningful, right? Because that impacts your cost. So our platform makes it easy to automatically summarize that data so that you can save space, save storage costs. It helps you automatically evict the high precision data, which again, like a traditional database isn't really designed for that, right? The assumption with the traditional database is you want to keep all the data that you write into it, essentially. It's not optimized for doing a delete for every single record that you insert, which is something that we basically support. The last bit is like that monitoring and alerting of that data, Doing building systems around that is difficult, particularly at that kind of scale. So we make all of that easier. So the use cases for it specifically are obviously like server monitoring is a big, big use case, you know, tracking what's going on in your servers and your applications, application performance monitoring, network monitoring. But sensor data is more and more a bigger use case for us. And that could be like industrial IoT, tracking what's going on in a factory or in a warehouse or in solar farms or power plants or any of that kind of stuff. But it also could be like consumer stuff. That is interesting. Most people, when they think of database, exactly what you just said, kind of hinting at the differences, they think of, let's say, records by day. So the day will have a record and then that's it. And you're saying, hey, this sounds like your tool is capturing data at maybe second or sub-second intervals. Is that accurate? Yeah. Well, so there are two different kinds of time series data. So there's what's called regular time series, which is what most people think of when they think of time series data. That's like metrics. So that's samples taken at fixed intervals of time, like once a second, once every 10 seconds, once an hour, once a day. In some sensor data use cases, you may actually be taking measurements like a thousand times a second. But then there's irregular time series data, which is essentially event-driven. That's just tracking events as they occur. So that could be individual requests into an API. That could be a machine turning on or off, a state changing somewhere or something like that. So what does this unlock? So you have this data, now you're capturing it, you know, all these time sequences, timestamps, everything's happening, high velocity. You mentioned all these sensors, different use case applications. What does this unlock? Because what does this unlock that a traditional database storage system maybe couldn't provide for application developers? So collecting all of this data is basically, it's so that you can make more intelligent systems and you can optimize processes and stuff. So I know of some use cases like in, in essentially like factories, where they want to optimize the way the machines run for power consumption. Because when you have, say, like 50 factories around the world and they're running all the time, like reducing your power consumption by 10% by optimizing the way your machines run is a huge, like literal cost savings, right? So a lot of the times that's what you're doing is you're optimizing some function, a way a machine runs. You can also do like predictive maintenance is another big use case, right? So you can say like, oh, we know this machine is going to fail, so we'll take it out of service first and do a repair before that happens. So for example, like Rolls-Royce power systems uses Implux for just this kind of thing. No, super fascinating. Give me an idea. How did you recognize that this is going to be a potential product market fit type product or a solution that needed to be solved? We did a little homework. It looks like Influx data started around 2012. This predates the current market penetration of IoT devices that we have today, obviously. It was nine years ago, eight years ago, maybe 10 years ago, you got the idea to do this. What were you observing and saying, hey, this is, this is where we're going to, where this is where the future's heading? So it first started in 2010. I was working for a fintech startup here in New York City, and we were building a system to track hundreds of thousands of different derivatives, corporate bonds, 
fixed income things, like also all of this stuff. And we had pricing engine that was pricing all of these instruments once every 10 seconds. So we had to build a system for that. And what I built at that time was a bunch of web services on top of Cassandra, which is a, a scalable database and Redis, which is an in-memory system. Basically, like me and another guy had to write code for like a year to build like a working system. <laughs> a few years later, when I started this company, I initially started this company actually as uh, a company called Airplane, E-R-R-P-L-A-N-E. And that product was essentially going to be a SaaS application for doing uh, real-time metrics and monitoring and stuff like that. So that was similar to like what Datadog is or New Relic or Stackdriver, those kinds of things. To build that application, so this is in a completely different problem domain, right? A completely different space. I use the exact same technologies. So I basically had to build a time series solution to store that kind of data. So that's what gave me the idea that time series was actually just a useful abstraction for solving problems in a number of different domains. So obviously that company didn't succeed. But what I realized, I started that company in 2012. 2013, we went through Y Combinator and we're still building this thing. And I raised like a small seed round of funding. And then over the course of 2013, I realized that that product wasn't working, but I thought the infrastructure that we had built was interesting. And I started talking to other people about it. And I realized that maybe the infrastructure that we were building is what we should be focusing on, not this like application that I had envisioned. In the fall of 2013, I said, let's, you know, it was me, my co-founder and one other guy at that point. I said, let's start this up as a fresh project. We'll use the exact same technologies that we used then, which was, you know, it was written in Go and using a storage engine called LevelDB that was out of Google. And we started as a fresh project. We hacked on it for like five weeks. I put up a basic documentation website. I arranged to give a couple of talks at some meetups here in New York, the Ruby meetup and the R programming meetup. And basically, like once I presented it, it immediately took off. Like everybody was super interested in it. Um, it got to like the front page of Hacker News. That's a, that's a good sign for sure. <laughs> yeah, it, launching that into the world felt completely different than you know Airplane, the app that we were trying to make work. It was just like we had immediate interest from people, and it was obvious that we were solving a problem at that time that people just weren't focused on, but there was a real need for it. So it sounds a little bit like you, you yourselves weren't even that certain that there was going to be that much need for it, right? It sounded like it was a bit, was it a bit surprising or was it like giving an idea of we're like, oh, dang, like this is really, this is really it. I mean, we did it because I thought, you know, I, th- I thought there was a need for it. I like, I definitely identified that as a thing. Like I identified that time series was a common abstraction and that it would be useful for, like I said, these different problem areas like server monitoring, application monitoring, sensor monitoring, and real-time analytics. But obviously, like it's always a surprise when you launch something and it actually takes off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We always read about those overnight, like boom, like something's got a good product market fit. Everyone wants to hit that. So, so far for myself personally, I've only been part of slow grinds, but it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> to give you an idea, like IT visionaries used to do like under a thousand new, you know, obviously only a couple hundred new listeners when we first started. And now here we are, thousands of new listeners every week. So that's pretty exciting. But for your product, understanding this a little bit. So now you have a little bit of product market fit. You're developing the application. Now comes the real test because so far from every engineer I've talked to, it seems like there's a reach a point where it's like you hit like the roadblock, right? There's going to be a roadblock where you just weren't anticipating and you have to engineer a solution to it. Did you ever get roadblocked? What was your roadblock, I guess, along the way? Because now developers are adopting it. They're using this time series monitoring database that wasn't available to them before, surely you hit a problem where it's like, oh man, 
we got to engineer a solution to that. Well, so the first thing we launched was the database itself. And gotcha. honestly, we launched like a prototype of the database. And what we saw over the first like six months and people starting to pick it up and use it was they had these other common problems they had to solve. Like I said, collection, monitoring, learning on the data and like visualizing it. You know, when I went out to raise the Series A, that's the story I raised on. That's the vision I, I had, which was we're going to build this platform with solutions in each of these areas, right? Collection, storage, monitoring, and visualization. So that was the first like bid. InfluxDB itself, the core of the database, has had a few like key inflection points where, where we had to change things significantly. So the first was in basically 2015. Late 2014, 2015, we changed the underlying data model of the database to what it is now, which is the data structure that we have for time series data. And we've been with that structure ever since. We launched 1.0 of the database in 2016, and we've been running with that. And it's been very, very successful, but it's still, it's mostly optimized for what I call metric data of not huge cardinality. So probably in the tens of millions of unique time series that we track, we actually have larger, we have hundreds of millions of time series in our, you know, in our cloud environment, actually maybe more than a billion. But what we've seen over the rise of like Kubernetes and container technologies and all sorts of other sensor data use cases is that people frequently have this need to track basically an unlimited number of time series. Like there's always more data that people could be collecting so they could get better visibility into their systems and their sensors. So we're in the process right now of basically creating a new core of the database that will enable us to have essentially unlimited cardinality, unlimited number of series, scaling up to multiple petabytes of data across tens of thousands of servers and stuff like that. Basically, like for every engineering challenge, you're lucky if your solution will last for two orders of magnitude of scale. <laughs> Likely you only get one and essentially you end up having to redo the whole thing to get the next order of magnitude and then the next one. Like Google's rewritten their infrastructure multiple times. Yeah. For example. <laughs> That's one of the things that we've just come to understand here at IT Visionaries because of so many different tech leaders have been on the show. The idea that, you know, there are a lot of different tools are, are ready to scale and implement. Like it feels a lot of tools are seem more ready, but like on the database size, we always hear about companies having to like restructure, rewrite, refactor, all those different terms that you basically redo, right? <laughs> like kind of what you just said. I guess, why is it that it seems like a unique challenge, but it's also, it feels like to someone who's an outsider, like, don't you guys see that coming? Why is this such a challenge? Because we understand that data is going to continue to increase. So your processing speed, your ability to collect it, organize it, structure it, it's going to have to keep increasing. What do you think is the unique challenge behind this problem that makes it you know, such an engineering feat? Because like you said, you, you reach a point where it's like you realize, hey, we have to rewrite this. Can you put a finger on a handful of factors maybe that, are, that cause this? And how do you, I guess, get in front of it? I mean, I guess it depends. This is, a, I guess, part of this is down to like a philosophical argument. Right. Because <laughs> there's no right answer. <laughs> well, the, the truth is, like, you know, when you're starting up a new product or a new company or whatever, engineering for a level of scale that you don't yet need to meet is over engineering, right? Like, basically, what all of your efforts should be put towards finding a product that people want to use and actually solves a real problem. Right. And then you hit scale later. And the, pro the problem is, like, building a system to handle one, like, you know, a couple of users is way easier than building a system to handle, say, 
5 billion users like Facebook, for example, right? Like the first version of Facebook wasn't going to be designed for that. Also, like, it's just a matter of like your amount of the amount of resources you have along the way in, increases as your scaling needs increase usually, right? So there's that. And honestly, like software and computers and stuff like that aren't a fixed target. They continuously improve all the time. When I created the first version of InfluxDB, I wrote that in Go using LevelDB. And actually, I had mentioned like before that in 2010, when I created that time series solution for the fintech startup, I used Scala and Cassandra and Redis. Like in 2010, Go and LevelDB weren't an option. I mean, Go existed, but it wasn't like Go hit 1.0 in March of 2012. So basically, like the technologies just didn't even exist then. And now, like the new core of the database that we're creating is written in Rust using Apache Arrow. And these things, like literally when I started in FlexDB in 2013, that wasn't really an option, right? No, it makes total sense. You're the, the evolution and the toolkits available to you keep changing. And then, like you just said, the requirements always keep changing, which inevitably typically means you've now have a system that can't handle whatever amount of data you're producing. So, you know, you built this tool, it starts getting quickly adopted. You've overcome the engineering challenges. I guess, what is it unlocking today that's really exciting because we categorize it at IT Visionary as kind of like developer toolkits, right? Like it's a toolkit for a developer to do something else. And sometimes it's hard for our listeners to conceptualize what is that something else? Like why would developers need this toolkit? You kind of mentioned it on the server-side monitoring, the sensor data monitoring that's happening in IoT and some of the applications people are building. I'd love for you to share what are some of the things you're seeing right now where you're like, wow, this is, this is some groundbreaking stuff. You mentioned like the factory savings costs. That's going to be huge. Give us an idea of what other use cases are being put out there right now where you were maybe taken aback or surprised by like, wow, I didn't realize unlocking this information, organizing this information could unlock such things. Yeah. I mean, I get mostly excited about the sensor data use cases because they're, they're just so interesting and they're so widely varied, right? Like on one sensor data use case, it's you know people growing apples for hard cider that they're making putting sensors into the apple trees to basically optimize their apple production, stuff like that, which is super interesting. And then on the other side, like, like I mentioned the Rolls-Royce one, but another is like SunPower is using InfluxDB to monitor energy production and sensor health on solar panels wow. powering homes. I've also seen stuff like wind turbines is interesting. There's an observatory in South America. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. They're using it like all these weird, like different sensor data use cases. Uh, basically, it tells me that literally anything that can be instrumented out there in the physical world will be eventually. Yeah. So just think about like the limitless number of sensors that are going to be installed all over the world, taking measurements, all different kinds of measurements, so we can optimize processes and basically get visibility into the physical world. So your use case right there just reminded me of another use case that one of our guests from Bayer crop science talked to us about and talked about how like the future is going to have sensors and it's already there. She said, there's going to be sensors in soil. So like the traditional way a farmer would water is based upon rainfall, right? And if it didn't rain enough, they would water the entire field. But what if you knew the exact water requirements by like plot of land? So constant sensor data and like what levels of water or moisture would be best and optimized for the highest yield crops. And they talked about how it would reduce that water. So every application, as you just said, like that was going to require tons of sensors. Those sensors are going to be producing a ton of data in real time. Something's got to process it. 
So then the watering tool can just be like, this gets, you know, 10 milliliter, this one gets 10,000 liters, like to that level of detail. And I was trying to conceptualize it. But when you started talking about your use cases, I was like, that's it. They have to use a tool like this that can figure this out in real time. Right. Otherwise, how else will they know to water this? Yeah, exactly. And if you're going to instrument like an entire like farmland, like that's a lot of sensors and a lot of data. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How do you guys think about approaching the storage? It was, it was, you hinted at it earlier, how it could be really inefficient for like, how long do I keep it? How long do I store it? How do I delete it? How do I rewrite it? These are all things, of course, you and your team have to think about it. Do you do it based upon each use case application of how the database is going to operate and function? Or give us an idea of what goes into that thought process? Because that's, of course, you need a historical record if you're going to do any type of year-over-year change analysis and things like that. So I'm curious, how much storage do you really need to plan for? Uh, I mean, it really depends on the use case, right? right? So in server monitoring, for example, like the data, the value of the data falls off pretty quickly. Like you, you really need high precision data for like a week or two, but beyond that, like you can have lower precision data for trend analysis to do planning for whatever, right? For other use cases, you might need to keep around all of your data for all time, in which case you just, you need a system that will let you move. But the thing is like, your access patterns change as the data ages out, right? So with our use cases, essentially like we're optimized for real time. So anything that's recent is queried frequently, right? Because you need to do monitoring alerting on it or people looking at it or whatever. And as data ages out, you need a system that automatically manages the lifecycle. So it moves it over to from memory to say locally attached SSD to object storage on a spinning disk, right? To cheaper and cheaper places. And even within object storage, they have varying degrees of accessibility and price. So having a system that manages that for you is really what we're all about. And basically making that so... Essentially, the, the goal of the database is that it's generalizable for these time series use cases. So it's like, if you have a need to keep the data around for all time and you just need the lifecycle managed, it will do that for you and you can set that up via configuration. If you have a need to evict the data to save money, whatever, you can also set that up. And you just, through configuration, do that on a case-by-case basis. Makes total sense. The thought process behind some of the products, I'd love to hear this. So there's four that I quickly understand. And I'm curious, like what the fifth one I'm curious about, which is InfluxDB templates. We've talked to a lot of software startup people, right? And they tell you, it's like time to value is like one of the biggest metrics. Like how fast can someone get there? Were these templates born from that? Was it through people asking you like, hey, like, I don't know how to set this up? Or was it more use case driven where you saw so many use cases basically repeating use cases where you're like, hey, if we set up a template for that, I bet we could go close more of these customers. I'm curious, how did you guys go down the template route? It's a bit of both actually. Yeah, because like I said, there are common patterns that you see in the case of, say, server monitoring, right? There are well-known applications, like I have this kind of database to monitor, this kind of service to monitor, right? It's just convenient to have a template for that. But other things are like completely custom, right? In which case, the templating can still be useful for the people internally, but they use it themselves to like replicate it across, like, say you have like a factory, you have many, many factories, right? You create the template once for one factory, and then you just replicate it for all the other ones. That's the idea behind the, the templating system is like one, so we can do it, but then also so our customers can do it as well if they need to. When you introduced that product, did you notice any type of inflection point in the business? Because now it was easier to onboard and so on. Was that one of the 
catalysts? No, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> not, not necessarily. Uh, no, I mean, it's just been steady growth all along. So I wouldn't say, I'd say like the biggest inflection point we had was when we released 1.0, but <laughs> you would expect that. Talk about how you guys are thinking about the future. You've built the product, you know, you found out some product market fit, you've clearly solved the problem. You got engineers who need that time series data and easier to manage systems. They don't want to build themselves, they'd rather use your tools. Makes total sense. How do you see your marketplace evolving? How is Influx data going to evolve? What are some of the things that you think you know, are betting on in the next, let's say, five years? So where we're going mainly is one, having a system that's more seamlessly integrated to operate at the edge and in the cloud. We spent the last few years building out our cloud solution. So now we have it available in you know the three major public clouds, AWS, GCP, and Azure. Yep. We're going to spend a lot of time over the next few years building out that edge solution so that you can have collection, monitoring, and storage at the edge seamlessly integrated with the system in the cloud. And that's a need that we continuously see through the, the sensor data use cases, right? Be, because people want to be able to do really high precision, low latency stuff at the edge, but have it work also in a, in a center system. And then the other big piece is, I would say, meeting developers where they live. So basically, more support for additional query languages and additional uh, programming languages within the platform. So we'll be adding support for SQL as a query language. We'll be adding support for Python and JavaScript and TypeScript as scripting languages that people like our users can use within the platform itself. No, that is awesome. You know, one of the use cases that you just talked about with the bringing InfluxDB closer to the edge to take advantage of some of the use cases that require even more or lower latency is autonomous vehicles, which is something that a lot of companies are working for. It's an interesting use case. So some people have talked about, so when we have networking guests, I just wanted to share this. When we have networking guests, they'll say like 5G is going to get so fast that you can send data across 5G into a central, you know, like let's say central region. You won't need to bring computing the edge because 5G will bring the edge to you. We've had people that say that. We have people that say that it's going to be hybrid. We have people that say they're going to build micro applications, you know, loading closer to wherever the end user is going to be. How do you see it, like your place in the edge? Do you see like that micro application that's going to live closer to the consumer plus a central database back at the cloud hub? I'm curious how you guys are planning to bring your services closer to the edge because I, I love that concept because we had an autonomous driving team on and they talked about how the level of processing doesn't make sense if it's only in your computer. Like it's got to learn from its environment. So it's got to collect data from the environment at large, bring it back, bring it to you in the car. And they were talking about how to solve for this use case. I'm curious for you, how are you approaching? Which angle do you think you guys want to live in? Yeah, so I think it's hybrid. Uh, well, I think it's hybrid for a few different reasons. Like one, just because of the sheer volume of the data and, and some applications are latency sensitive and right. they're failure sensitive too. Like it's great. Maybe 5G is going to let you transfer data at insane rates, <laughs> right? But the speed of light is still a thing and yep. networks still fail, right? <laughs> There's that. Like you can always get more visibility, you can always get more instrumentation, but at some point there's a, a value drop off in terms of like how much does it cost you to get that much visibility and instrumentation versus how much value you're deriving out of it. Now, if you can push stuff down to the edge, you can get really, really high precision and kind of like discard the data as you go, or maybe only sample the interesting data or summarize the data and then ship it up to a center place, right? 
So I think there's that. And then the, the, the other bit, which I don't think people talk about much is as a thought experiment, you could say, what if you had a database, you know, in, in the cloud that was instantly accessible and infinitely scalable? Would you want to have other databases elsewhere? And the answer I think is yes, because you still have this problem of developers create software and they use databases and they will create bugs, which will manifest itself within the database. Your database will fall over or will fail because of a software yeah. bug that some developer introduced. So actually <laughs> having one centralized database for everything increases the blast radius for any sort of failure. Yeah. So in many cases, it's advantageous to have many, many different databases so that you can contain any failure to one specific place. So I think that also is in that edge use case as well, right? Like if you have 50 factories around the world, one factory goes down, like, yeah, that sucks. If all 50 go down because of one failure, then that's catastrophic. That use case application of autonomous vehicles, I think always is a fun one to ask engineers at the infrastructure level, because you kind of hinted at it right there, like how big of a deal is a failure or database error? Well, like if, if it's the braking function, every split second is a problem, right? <laughs> like right. Every split second, the car doesn't know to brake is a serious problem. So it's a fascinating thing to solve for, but I agree. I think hybrid, everything, nothing is going to eat everything. Maybe the cloud. I don't know. Because I'm sure <laughs> as the cloud starts proliferating, more, more people are going to find use cases for data center. You know what I mean? Like, no, I, I feels like as the the way we're going and the way technology is innovating in the reliance and now with time series, right? The more real time applications, it's going to move into critical health functions. It's going to move into critical life saving functions. Where kind of like you said, if a factory goes down, one out of fifty, that's a financial problem. It's not a life problem. Once life equipment is going to be based on this information, it's going to basically. I agree with you. It's going to be completely hybrid because it's going to have to rely on everything because it can never fail. Yeah. Like the, people are going to, have to engineer the solution to be not only, like you said, extremely low latency, but also this idea that it can never fail. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the things we think about right now is as things are changing so much, you know, you're in the tech space, you're developing engineering. And one of the things that's happening to all tech leaders is how do you get talent and retain talent? This is something that's not just unique to you. You guys, you guys are innovating fast. You're going after database. Just give us an idea of what it's like to recruit people into your organization, because We've had some companies talk about this. Just, they're not just not teaching this stuff in school fast enough. There's not enough people going into this field. I'd love to understand where are you looking for people? What things, and if people want to work with Influx, what should they be focused on and studying? Because a good percentage of our listeners are also young, let's say aspiring engineers and developers. They're looking for guidance on that. Yeah. So, I mean, our key tool sets are basically Go, Rust, and JavaScript, right? Front-end JavaScript. Personally, I'm super bullish on Rust. If, you know, if a young developer were to ask me what to focus on right now, I'd tell them to learn Rust and start programming with that. So where do we look? Uh, all over the place. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, some of the, some of the best, uh, some of the best people we, we manage to hire are actually people that we source from open source communities from our own open source community and basically people that we interact with out there in the world as we're, you know, putting software out there. So yeah, I would say learn Rust. If you can get involved in open source projects, that's always good too. <laughs> Absolutely. Paul, I want to say thank you for joining us today on IT Visionaries. But before 
we end our conversation. We always have to do this with all of our guests, and it's time for the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to you by Salesforce Platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Paul, this is where we ask you questions outside of the world of work so that our audience can get to know you a little bit better. Are you ready? I'm, I'm ready. All right. We see that you're in NYC and SF. What is a unique thing that maybe a lot of people don't know about the NYC tech scene? What do people don't know about it? I don't know. <laughs> uh, I don't know. It's, it, the, any community stuff has been shut down for two years, obviously. <laughs> I don't know. I think there's a really healthy machine learning community here. It's really strong. There are some good machine learning leaders here in New York, which I think is great. But I'm partial to that because that was an interest of mine back in the day. Obviously, databases are big here too. <laughs> MongoDB is headquartered here. Uh, and essentially, many of the ad platforms had to had to build their own databases from scratch. So, I got to ask you. So, we hear of relocation, right? A lot of people are saying, you know, Silicon Valley is relocating. We missions HQ'd in Austin. We've heard all the buzz in Miami. Is there is there a buzz in New York City? Are people looking to? Have you noticed a buzz in New York City where people want to go there, or do you see more people leaving because remote work is now opening the doors for everybody? Oh, I mean, people people want to come here because it's the best city in the world. There you go. <laughs> <There's>, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, why is it the best city? There you go. <laughs> uh, let's see. I, there's uh, there's tons of stuff to do. There's great food. There's uh, thing, great culture, like theater, like all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's it's awesome. What's your favorite part of New York City? Uh, Williamsburg, where I live. <laughs> the favorite part is in the the favorite neighborhood, or yeah, well, anything. Yeah, what's what's so great about Williamsburg? Uh, we got the waterfront right here. There are great restaurants and bars. Um, yeah, Domino Park is open now, which is pretty awesome. It's like right on the waterfront. Yeah, it's a nice place to be. <laughs> awesome. We noticed you were an editor on a, on a book, Addison Wesley's Data and Analytics. So, well, so I'm, that's a book series. So I'm actually an editor. I'm the series editor for that. So it's basically a set of books and videos that are created around big data, analytics, machine learning, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and I actually wrote a book for Addison Wesley back in 2010 called Service Oriented Design with Ruby and Rails because I was a Ruby programmer once upon a time. <laughs> you lent your technical expertise, I would say, to the writing side. Do you like writing about any other subjects? <laughs> Just programming stuff. <laughs> <laughs> All in on programming. What do you like to do for fun outside of work? Because you kind of hinted at it. You love the restaurants. You love this vibrant culture and scene. But I would love to know like specifically what it is you like to do for fun. When you can cut loose, what would you like to do? Now that shows are open again, I actually went to the ballet like three weeks ago, which is great. I try I usually try to do that like maybe like three or four times a year. That's fun. I love to travel. Um, yeah, I think I've been to like uh, somewhere in the 40s or 50s in terms of number of countries. Oh, that's awesome. Which, uh, which countries... One of your more memorable ones, more memorable trips. Mongolia was super memorable. Yeah. Being in the Gobi wow. Desert. Yeah. <laughs> wow. You are without a doubt the first person that is from, or excuse me, visited Mongolia. Yes. Everybody I met there was delightful. That's awesome. I want to say thank you for joining us today on IT Visionaries. Thanks for sharing the origin story of how you know Influx Data came to be, your experience in the field, and also your expertise in time series. I think that is a unique, certainly a unique thing that you guys have clearly identified. And I can see it just based on your use cases, this demand, it's never going to stop. Basically, it's never going back, yeah. right? Every day, there's probably someone else developing new 
sensor technology that's going to require constant time series database management. Yeah, that's that's the plan. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us today on IT Visionaries. Yeah, thank you so much for having me.